0: Excellent. How are you doing, family? You doing okay? We're going to pray, then we're going to open God's word. Father, don't let any of us leave here today the same as the way we came in. Shape us by your word. Help us have our eyes open, the eyes of our hearts and our minds enlightened by the gospel of Jesus, Lord. Father, those who are far away from you, we pray for them today in Jesus' name, that they will come near to you. Those who don't know God, we pray, Lord, they would leave this place knowing you better, And Father, those of us who came in, we pray you would impact us deeply through your word and shape us in the image of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your seats. Good morning online. Family, saw a bunch of you online there. I uh, wasn't text messaging during the service. I was just checking the YouTube comments. So it's so great to see from so many of you. Special hi to my mum in Tweed Heads. I've heard you've got COVID, mum, so uh, don't cough on anyone. Hope you feel better. Love you. Uh, We will talk to you soon. Awesome. Well... As a church, we've been doing a series, and we started it last week, and Lyndon Lyndon Frearsson did an amazing job opening our series. You can get it on YouTube, or you can download our podcast, and the series is called Jesus More Than You Know. Now, something really interesting has happened, and that is, of course, that the Bible is divided into two two chunks, isn't it? There's the Old Testament, which is everything that led up to Jesus, and then there's the New Testament, what happened after Jesus and when Jesus came. And of course, the New Testament begins with these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels. And these are four tellings, four accounts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. They're, they're, They're strange accounts because when we compare them to all of the known types of writing and all of the known types of literature in the ancient world there is nothing like these four Gospels now I want you to think about that I've spent the last twenty years studying scripture and also studying literature um, and and I'll tell you now that there is nothing like Matthew Mark Luke and John in in the whole entire literary world if you study the Odyssey written by Homer you will find There is plenty of literature like that from the ancient world. Homer himself wrote many things that are very similar to the the Odyssey. Now, here's what happened. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have been studied over centuries, this is what we find. There's nothing like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did something not many people can have a claim to fame about in their lifetime. Would you like to know what it is? They invented a type of literature. I thought that was impressive, but you... you You've got, how many of you have invented a type of literature? <laughs> it's called gospel literature. Gospel literature. Gospel literature is interesting because on the one hand it's historiographical, it's history, it's making a claim not about epic myths or about um, even just parables, although there are parables in what they say, it is actually historical. That is, this is a claim to be a written account of something that actually happened. But the problem is, oh, the problem is, my friends, that when you look at gospel literature, not only is it historical, that would be easy if we could just deal with history, but it is theological. That is, that it's, his, it's the point in human literature at which the historical and the theological intersect, where these happenings of a man called Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of Joseph, came to a concrete time and place, to a concrete people, and did and said amazing things, culminating in what we'll celebrate Good Friday this week and Easter Sunday this week, this sacrificial death and this victorious resurrection. Now, of course, if it was just mythological, it would be fine. We could read it alongside Aesop's fables and many other types of things. But the problem is it comes to us couched in historical data. That is that Jesus actually lived. There were eyewitnesses to his life. There were eyewitnesses to his teaching. There were eyewitnesses to his claims, one of the things that got him killed. And there were eyewitnesses to his suffering and death and his resurrection. And that is why gospel literature is so strange, because gospel literature is a historical construction of the events, a historical retelling of the events that led up to the most amazing thing about Christianity, and that is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In the words of Paul the Apostle, death could not hold him down. And this is not a mythological claim that Jesus is somehow spiritually present with us in his resurrection. This is a claim that no one had ever seen in the world before, that someone that we know was dead, we saw alive. And by the way, not only did they predict their death, but so did the prophets for hundreds of years before them. And you're supposed to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John with a little bit of surprise, because I don't know about you, but um, that is a surprising story, friends. It doesn't happen every day. And so gospel literature is strange because it blends this historiography with theology and gives us a theological explanation for the breaking of God into the bloodstream of human history. If I was God, I wouldn't enter the bloodstream of human history. Would you? I'd stand from afar and with one big lightning bolt, I'd smite all the evildoers and the genre of country music. That's not true, I actually quite like country music. I can tell you my favourite artist later if you don't believe me. So don't get defensive, St George people, alright? Um, I'd smite all the evildoers, and then I'd pick the world up, and I'd and I'd just fix everything like that. I wouldn't get involved, you know what I'm saying? Ever, ever walked past your kid's messy bedroom, and like, oh, the best way to deal with this, and you just shut the door. <laughs> Throw a Molotov cocktail in there and shut the door, don't you? That's how I'd fix it. That's not what we see in the Gospels. The Gospels are the very, very strange happenings of a God who loved the world so much that he entered the bloodstream of humanity. And so over this next little while as a church, every time that we sort of meander in and out of this Jesus More Than You Know series, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the very four different portraits we get of Jesus, a different uh, a portrait from Matthew which has his own emphasis, a portrait from Mark and Luke and John, each of them having their own emphasis like a multifaceted diamond, they turn the Jesus story a little bit in a direction and go, hey, have a look at it from this angle, have a look at it from this angle, and today we're going to begin just looking in Matthew's Gospel. But before we turn to Matthew's Gospel, I need you to play a game with me. Who thinks they feel like they're back in youth group? I need you to play a game. Here's the game. I want you to write your life story. I want you to write your life story in 17 sentences. Okay? Your life story. Your family tree. Let's call it your family tree. Your history. And here are the rules for what you're going to write. Let me just find the rules. What have we got up on the screen? Okay, here are the rules. Here's the rules. You can read them. First of all, the number of words you use must be divisible by seven exactly, okay? Must be related to the prime number of seven. The number of letters you use must be divisible by seven exactly. The number of vowels must be divisible by seven. The number of consonants must be divisible by seven exactly. The number of words that begin with a vowel must be divisible by seven exactly. The number of words that begin with a consonant must be divisible by seven exactly. The number of words that occur more than once must be divisible by seven exactly. The number of words that occur in more than one form must be divisible by seven. The the number of words that occur in only one form must be divisible by seven. Here's a few more, the number of nouns has to be divisible by seven, only seven words cannot be nouns, the number of names has to be divisible by seven, and the number of male names has to be divisible by seven, and the number of generations must be divisible by seven. What do you think? How many mathletes are in the room? One of my daughters, she's a mathlete, man. She's a full mathematician, Bible nerd. We've pocket protectors. They don't sell them in Alice Springs, you know, but she's died in the wool nerd. So she would have fun with this game. That is, everything in that body of writing that you do must be related to the number of seven. How, how, how are you going? Danielle's all right. She's one of seven kids. Where are you, Danielle? you would be fine. So here's the thing. In, in, in the Hebrew language and the Greek language, they are distinct and unique of all of the languages on the face of the earth for this one thing that they share in common. There are no other languages on planet Earth that share this feature in common. And that is that both languages, Hebrew and Greek, have that each letter of the alphabet corresponds to a number. And therefore, in those two alphabets, there are no numbers, there's no numbering system. The letters stand in for the number that they symbolise. In the Hebrew, it is the letter Aleph, where we get our letter A from. And an Aleph is the first letter, so it is the number Oh, you guys are good. In the Greek number in the Greek alphabet, it would be the letter alpha where we get our A from. The letter alpha is indeed the number. And it goes through for all the twenty-six letters of the alphabet, and each number has numerical value. Okay. So what you can do then is when you're an author in the language of Hebrew, when you're an author in the language of Greek, what you can do is for some reason, some of the passages that come to us from the ancient world have all of these word plays that when you add up the numbers, they come to us as multiples of seven inside the Bible. Let me say it a different way for you. There's no known literature on the planet in any language, even if you took these numerical rules and applied them to, say, English. There's no known language on the planet that can fulfill the rules of seven. But many passages in Scripture do, and one is Genesis chapter 1. The rules of seven in Genesis chapter 1 are incredible. Not only is something that happening over seven days, but there's all sorts of sevens and mathematical equations in Genesis chapter 1. This feature of the heptatic rule, the sevens in Scripture, not just that seven things get mentioned, seven days, seven feasts, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all these sorts of things, but in fact that even the words itself will find they will be divisible by seven, that the letters will be divisible by seven, that the sums will end up as prime numbers that are divisible by seven, all this weird stuff. Um, this, This mathematics was discovered by a mathematician from Harvard called Dr. Ivan Parnin. A man who was an atheist, but as he began to study Scripture and look into the mathematical nature and the symmetry, the elegant mathematical symmetry of it, he fell on his knees and he gave his life to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Because his conclusion was no person, and he tried, no person could ever recreate the mathematical symmetry that we see in the pages of Scripture. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Actually, many mathematicians have given their life to Jesus based on the same thing, probably because, A, they understand maths better than us, mere humans. Uh, and, and secondly, because if you take this formula and try to apply it to other bodies of literature, it doesn't work for the Quran, it doesn't work for the, the Vedic texts, it doesn't work for Buddhist texts, it doesn't work for Lord of the Rings, it doesn't work for the Mar- your Marvel comic books. You know, there's, there's all sorts of attempts have been proven to try to recreate this mathematical sequence in all sorts of other documents, and yet none have ever upheld and so Dr. Ivan Parnan became a believer in Jesus and spent the rest of his life explaining these things. So Genesis 1 is one of the texts where you find this mathematical symmetry but oddly enough so is Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 to 17 and that is our text today. This mathematically symmetrical text which many of us have probably not really paid a huge amount of attention to across our lifetimes. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, this is how it starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is Matthew's introduction to Jesus. Well, I don't know. Have you ever read the whole introduction before? Who here will confess in church, in the house of the Lord, amongst the people of God, that one time, you know, or another, they have binged watched an entire series on Netflix? Anybody? Come on, people. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. Should we have a little prayer time? So I I don't mind. When I was uh, in COVID, I slept a lot and I just binge watched a few TV shows. So when you get um, the next episode of a TV show, Netflix gives you this wonderfully courteous option. It's called skip intro. Who's capitalised on the skip intro function? No more sitting through that entire two minutes of the opening credits. Like that two minutes of your life that you will never get back ever again. No, I don't want to sit. See- I don't want to know who the filmmaker was. I don't want to know who the screenwriter was. I don't want to know who the producer was. I don't even know what a second junior key grip, assistant key grip means. Do you? So I don't want to know. I just want to skip the opening credits and get straight to the good stuff. Who's with me? Okay, well, we're tempted when we, opens Matthew, when we open Matthew's gospel to just sort of, let's get to the good stuff. Eh? And we already know the story, most of us. So, you know, let's get to the bit about the breaking of the bread and the passing of the cup. Let's get to the controversies over healing on the Sabbath and let's get to casting out demons and opening blind eyes and healing the lame. Let's get to including the outcasts. Uh, let's get to the controversies of the religious versus the grace that Jesus is bringing. Let's get to his suffering and death and his glorious resurrection. That's way more interesting. Can't, can't we just skip the opening credits, man? And Matthew gives us some opening credits, and we're going to read all of them today. That's right, friends. I'm going to torture you. Your reward for being in church this morning is you do not get to skip the intro credits on Matthew's gospel. And I suggest if you are with child in this place this morning, that you listen out to the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because you just might get some cool suggestions for baby names in this place also works if you're looking for a new Google password. <laughs> We're going to read, and our team are going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to read quick because we want to get to why, the why behind the what. Why does Matthew have this in here, and why is Pastor Ben making us do it? Is it just because he couldn't think of anything better to say to use up a few minutes on a Sunday morning? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Everybody say Tamar. Tamar. Notice how many boys have been mentioned? And notice how many girls have been mentioned. The mother of Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Sammon, he was a pescatarian, Sammon was the ma- father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, you're probably used to saying Rahab. How many women are being mentioned? Okay. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Ruth, how many women have being mentioned? Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What was her name? How many women are mentioned? Four women mentioned. Just open a browser tab in your mind and keep that window open while we progress. Uriah's wife. Verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abiyah. Abiyah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Okay, everybody take a breath. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Elihud. Elihud was the father of Eliazah, Eliada the father of Matan. Mathan the father of Jacob, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations. How many? Okay, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Say it with me, 14, 14, 14. Okay, very important, you might need this material for the test later on. Let's just take a breath. How many people just find it hard to pronounce all those Bible names all the time? Okay, I recommend that you go back through this later on, especially if you suffer insomnia. This is a non-medicinal but perfectly adequate cure to put you to sleep tonight. It's okay. Why a genealogy? Why does Matthew start his gospel this way? Why, does, why do I not let you skip it? Many of us, when we've read Matthew's gospel, we haven't spent much time in this text. We just kind of get to the next bit. We want to get to where the action is. So why did Matthew write a genealogy? Well, there's a few reasons. Here's the first one. That in the Jewish people, they were hung up on genealogies because when the person was making a particular claim, let's say they want to marry into your family, let's say they want to move into your neighbourhood, let's say they want to become a rabbi or a priest or a king or a politician, then what you want to do is you want to do some reference checks, Right? You know, how many, how many parents in the room, when someone starts dating your kid or showing expression, you're like, who are you and what is your family like? No? You're looking at me like a goldfish in a new bowl. Okay. You do. You're like, I want to check out where this person comes from. Well, the way the, the, the Hebrew people did that is they kept extensive records of genealogies. They can tell you back to your father's father's father, you know, 14 generations, 14, 14, 14. That's 42 generations. We can look back and check your references. We can find out who you are. We can find out where you come from. We can find out what type of skeletons are in the closet of the family tree. And people know our family tree had so many skeletons, we chopped down the tree and made a closet out of the, out of the family tree. Why a genealogy? Because sometimes we want to check out where a person comes from and what their family's like so that we can know, did they really come from where they say they're from? In the Jewish world, it's important because if you wanted to be a rabbi, then they had to make sure you came from a good lineage. If you wanted to be a priest, they had to look at your genealogy and make sure, can you trace your lineage back to the family of Levi that you're legitimately a priest? If you made a claim to a piece of land in Bethlehem, they wanted to trace it back. Do you trace your lineage back to Jesse's family or one of his brothers? Do you want to be a king? Are you related to a king? Do you have the divine birthright? Uh, Are you a descendant of one of those royal families? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you love to get a phone call one day saying, ah, look, mate, Prince Charles has just nominated you as his successor. (laughs) So, okay, does that mean I'm going to have to have my ears made surgically larger to fill his shoes? It's a big, deep question, isn't it? This feature was so important that in the first century world, King Herod, when he became king over the area of Judea, that is, Jerusalem and its surrounds, that he, when uh, when uh, Caesar Augustus made his family kings over uh, the, the nation around Judea, that uh, he went to have his, the Jewish people said, well, before we accept you as our king, the Romans might have made you king, but before we accept you as a king, we need to check out your credentials, man. We need to check out your family tree. Well, this is problematic for Herod because Herod was an Edomite. That means his family is not Israelite, so he has no claims to be a king. And Herod was dressing himself up, pretending that he was the Messiah of Israel, even telling them that. And of course, when the Jewish people went to To check the records, everybody's genealogical records were kept at the Sanhedrin and maybe each family also had a copy, but they were always kept at the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin, the ruling council over the nation of Israel, was in charge of telling you whether somebody's lineage was, was okay or not. Well, Herod didn't want to be found out as an Edomite, so what he did is he went and had his cronies burn down the Sanhedrin building and burnt all of the genealogical records of everything dating up to the first century. So then the only things that were left after that were people who had their own copies of stuff. That's how important a genealogy was. You can't be a king if we can't see where you come from. And so Matthew opens his historiographical theological account explaining to us the wonder and significance of the life of Jesus... By opening the sentence, by telling us this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Well, that's a big claim, isn't it? Messiah, everybody say Messiah. Messiah, the word is a strange one in English. We know it kind of means like a saviour figure or something like that. Messiah gets its name from the Hebrew word Mashiach Mashiach means the anointed one, how they would crown a king in ancient Israel as they would take you. And if you were the chosen king, usually a prophet would have to pick you out or you would be the son of the king or something like that. And the prophet would pour oil over your head and declare you were the king. And that was called anointing them. And in Hebrew, that made you an anointed one, a mashiach. Because why? Because he did the act of messiah on you. He anointed you. He poured oil on your head. So when you're called a king, you are the anointed king. You'll see it all through the Psalms. David, the anointed one. Why? Because the prophet called David out and anointed him with oil. Jesus the Messiah means Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the king. If you translate that into our English language, we don't say the word Messiah, do we? We say the word Christ. So you would have heard Jesus called Jesus Christ. And you certainly hear it on the building site when people drop their tools, don't you? Their, their prayer life improves. They're suddenly calling out to Jesus, aren't they? Maybe you've done it when you've kicked your toe or something like that. But Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ is Jesus' kingly title. It is the office that he has. Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus by Joseph's probably his surname. Jesus of Nazareth. That's who he's historically known for. But Jesus as the Christ. Christ is the, from the Greek word Christ. Christos, which means the anointed one. You take the Hebrew word, Mashiach, and you translate it into Greek, and you get Christos, and then you get Jesus Christos, the Greek version, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so when Matthew opens his gospel, the thing he's doing is he's telling you, before I go anywhere and justify what, all these crazy things that happen in the life of Jesus, let me tell you who he is by giving you his family tree. You can see where he came from. You can see the lineage that he has. And Matthew tells us up front, we're not just dealing with another person. We are dealing with a king who comes from a line of kings. God has a lineage. God has a royal family. And the person whose story we are reading is someone who is a member of that royal family family and that's why Matthew in his gospel this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah and he gives him these two amazing titles the son of David the son of Abraham and he traces his genealogy back 42 generations 14 14 14 and 14 Matthew does this with such incredible artistry, if you understand the rule of sevens and you understand this structuring around three paragraphs of genealogy, 14, 14, 14. Now, the Jewish people would play a game and they would add up all those numbers and they would come to totals and then those totals would stand for things. One of the most famous ones is the mark of the beast being 666, have you heard of it? a gematria. A gematria is when we add up the numbers and it makes something. And if you add up the numbers or the letters of the name 666, it gives you the name Nero Caesar. And that was John's way of writing to the ancient church. Who was the beast in his day? Who was the real Antichrist in his day? It was the ruler of the Roman Empire that was persecuting the church and had flattened Jerusalem a couple of years ago. Now we see him for what he is, not a powerful king, an Antichrist, a beast out of the sea. It's a gematria. 666 means something. Well, in the Jewish language, 14 means something as well, because 14 is when you take the name David, David, and you add it up, it gives you the numbers 14. And so when Matthew gives you this genealogy of Jesus, 14, 14, 14, any astute Jewish reader would have had their attention completely up 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Do you know what that says? That says, David, David, David. Wow, we're dealing with a king we're dealing with a ruler, we're dealing with someone where mathematical symmetry pervades their text like it does in Genesis chapter 1. This ain't no normal genealogy. So Matthew wants us to reflect deeply. Like I said, some people say that this mathematical symmetry, the use of the rule of sevens and the use of the 14, 14, 14 says, oh, well, it's an inspired text. And some people have formulated that conclusion, especially the mathematicians. Others haven't. Some people have said, well, you wouldn't have to be inspired to come up with that. Maybe you could just have an uber-massive brain and do it yourself. But if you did do it, if you did write in such a way that this numerical balancing act pervaded the text, imagine how thoughtful you'd have to be. Imagine how creative you'd have to be. And Matthew has written this genealogy so that we would pause and we would read it with his level of thoughtful reflection. Why is this like? What does this say to God about us? And that's why we don't skip over it. Now, of course, you know this because what Matthew's trying to do to you is a feature of our modern culture. Now, how many science fiction film fans are in the room? Doctor Who doesn't count. (laughs) Okay. In our house, I have three teenage daughters, and I will happily and publicly proclaim they are massive nerds, massive nerds. They like science, they like maths, but they love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How many other people have just such broken people under their roof that need redemption and prayer? In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you saw this picture, you would know instantaneously what it is. What is it? I've even given you a hint by writing its name up there. This is Thor's hammer, it's Molnir, okay? Now, Molnir, the first time you run into Molnir is where in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? (laughs) so okay here's the deal friends the universe is divided equally into two groups those who when when the credits run in a Marvel movie at the movies get up and walk out and then there are the purists the real nerds they don't walk out when the credits come up because they know a secret there's a Marvel cinematic secret would you like to know what it is here's what it is most Marvel films have a post credit scene if you got nothing else out of church today, you know that you've been doing it wrong your whole life. So the credits roll, and it's a bit of a funny thing, we have a little chuckle as our family, because when the credits roll in a Marvel film at the movies and everyone starts getting up to rush out, you're like, oh, you're missing out. And you just look a little bit smug at them like nerds do. You're like, oh, you don't, you don't, you don't roll this way, okay. You don't get science fiction, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uncircumcised Philistines. <laughs> there are post credit scenes. Now, the first time Molnir features in a post credit scene in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the post credit scene at the end of Iron Man 2. At the end of Iron Man 2, the credits roll, and then you get this shot where Molnir, Thor's hammer just <laughs> falls to planet Earth and makes a crater and sits there in a smoking heap. Okay. Now, those who are skilled by now in watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in order of cinematography release, not chronological release, um, they would understand that's going to mean something. And then YouTube videos get made and there's like, you know, people sprouting fan theories about it, what's going to happen? And, and, and the truth was, what happened is that when Marvel, the next film that Marvel brought out after Iron Man 2 was what film? It was Thor, okay, and that's what happened. Throwing Molnir down was a little thing, and in the science fiction fandom, a secret in one movie that points ahead to another movie is called an Easter egg. Easter egg. So who, who, who said they knew that? Put up your hand, it's so impressive. Unless you're here in the last service, then, <laughs> then you're just trying to look smart. It's called an Easter egg. Now, we know what an Easter egg is in real life, but in in science fiction, an Easter egg is when I'm going to put something here and it points forward. There's another cool one in Iron Man where he's welding his robot and the robot is sitting there floating on Captain America's shield. But that film of Captain America hasn't come out yet, so you don't know what it is, and you're kind of perplexing. But then when you see it later on, you're like, oh, oh, I've seen that before, and that's the point of an Easter egg, okay? An Easter egg tells you something, and then when you get to it, you're supposed to go, oh, hang on, I'll give you the the thing. You're supposed to say, we've seen this before, okay? I'm giving it to you. You've seen this before. And so when we read Matthew's genealogy, don't skip over it as the opening credits. Think about, think about it as the opening scene. The opening scene, but it's an opening scene unlike any other opening scene you've experienced because all of the Easter eggs about Jesus that are hidden in the Old Testament will be revealed in the New Testament. That's why this great scholar once said, "The New Testament is Christ concealed." Sorry, the Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. That there are things, there are Easter eggs all the way through the Hebrew Bible that point somewhere, and they're never fulfilled. And then when Jesus comes onto the scene, all over the shop, people are pow, 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 pow. Power. This is amazing. This is like watching Thor be released when you saw the hammer land at the end of the last chapter. And now it's all starting to make sense. I've seen this before. I'm getting excited, but you're just staring at me, so... <laughs> And so there are some things that Matthew wants us to do. Remember, Matthew is predominantly writing to the people of his day, a people with a heavy education in the Jewish culture. That means they're either Jews who've become Christians, or they're Jews who are thinking about Christianity, or they're Jews who are not yet Christian, or or they're Jewish Christians. His audience is people who know this stuff well. And that's why it's crucial for Matthew all the way through his gospel. Matthew is a gospel of Easter eggs, man. He just whips them out one after the other, one after the other. And all he does all the way through is show you, "Oh, you've seen that before." Matthew will quote the Old Testament, but he'll quote the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, or John, all put together. Have these things called fulfillment formulas where Matthew says, "This is this happened so that it will be filled what it would be fulfilled what was written." Easter eggs all the way through Matthew's gospel. And there are three predominant Easter eggs In Matthew's gospel. The first one in his opening. Now, in his opening, our English translation says, This is the genealogy of. Okay, this is the genealogy of. Now, if you went back to the original Greek that Matthew wrote in, and I'm assuming you have friends, so that you probably haven't taken the time to learn original Greek, um, then it's translated. Here it is on the bottom for you. It comes to us as, Biblos geneseos. This is the genealogy of. That's what our English translation says. In the Greek, it says, Biblos geneseos. Now, if you're a student of the Word, that phrase has your attention all of a sudden. The Biblos Genoseus, the book of Genesis, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a pretty big claim, wouldn't you say? I mean, if I say about you, hey man, happy birthday, this is the book of Genesis about Danielle. It's Danielle's birthday tomorrow, it's a pretty significant birthday. If she was playing cricket, she'd be raising the bat. I can't tell you her age publicly, but she'd be raising the bat in the middle of the pitch. Imagine if I wake up to her and say, well, Danielle, this is the book of Genesis of your life. I'm making claims about Danielle that are something pretty special, aren't they? And that's because if I go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, I'm going to see this phrase. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. And in the Bible, Jesus read in his day where people weren't reading Hebrew anymore. So they took the Hebrew Bible and they translate into Greek because everyone could read Greek. And in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in Genesis 2-4, it says, this is the Biblos Geneseos of the heavens and the earth. So Matthew is telling us something. He's telling us something. And what he's telling us is that in Jesus, we are reading about a new beginning. You know, if you're impressed when you read that God made the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, then you better be impressed when you start reading the story about Jesus, because this is not a story about creation. In Jesus, we get a story about new creation. Jesus is doing something new. He's giving the universe a fresh start. He's giving people a fresh start. Those who are far away can be made near. Those who are in darkness can see the light of God. Let there be light. That's a primary metaphor for the ministry of Jesus. And everything that God did in creating a new world in Jesus, Jesus comes to our broken world and he says, I'm coming to do new stuff. Let there be light everywhere. This is the Biblos Geneseos. Of a new, this is the dawning of a new future. This is a new age. This is a new opportunity. And Matthew is intent that we understand in Jesus, there's a new beginning. And he went to such depths to do it that he gives us these four names in his genealogy. We don't get Bathsheba's name. We get the wife of Uriah. These four women have three things in common. Number one, they're women. Do you know in the ancient world, it was unheard of to include women in a genealogy? We could count the uh, fifth one, which is Mary, if we wanted, because she's also mentioned in the text. But these four women, they have three things in common. One is they women, and women were never included in genealogies in the ancient world. And Matthew Park's little Easter egg that you'll see goes all the way through Jesus' ministry. No one would include women, but Jesus includes them amongst his disciples. Remember the Mary and Martha story? Jesus, why is my sister sitting at your feet? Come and tell her to help me do housework. And who's ever heard the, the devotion on that? Like, oh, you're too busy, you're like Martha, but you need to be a bit more like Mary and be still and know that I am God. Have you heard one of those type of devotions? Well, they're good, they're good. But the point is the primary interaction in that story is not about like she's been lazy, she's not doing the housework, it's that she's behaving inappropriately for the culture. Sitting at the master's feet was the posture of a disciple. And in Jewish culture, like pretty much every culture on the face of the earth in the first century, other than the weird cults in Corinth where they could, um, you know, breathe in drugs and then prophesy, the women could do that. But no women were allowed to be disciples. So Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus is not her being lazy. It's her saying, I'm a disciple too. I'm included as one of Jesus' 12. And so when the sister comes and says, Jesus, tell her to help me, she's not just saying, she's being lazy, I'm doing too much stuff. She realises Mary doesn't belong there. She doesn't belong in a, a woman in a man's world. And then Jesus says, Martha, don't worry. Mary has chosen what is better. A life of discipleship trumps a life of dishwashing any day of the week. And all the women in the house said, well, praise God, I'm going to spend more time at Jesus' feet this week myself. You go, girl. See, there's a code. It's an Easter egg. Jesus includes women in a world that pushes them out. You know, Gentile uh, Jewish men were famous in the first century for praying, God, I thank you. They started every day. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a dog or a woman, in that order. And Matthew includes these women in Jesus' genealogy in an unheard of move to show you as an Easter egg that you'll see into the future, that Jesus changes the way that women will be related to for all of future history. That's why Paul even said, man, they can even come into the church and learn now. They weren't able to do that before. That's the first thing, they're women. The second thing is each one of these women's story, if you study them in Scripture, they come from a profound place of sexual shame and brokenness. Prostitution, adultery... um, Being, a a, uh, questionably getting into bed with Boaz, Tamar, um, incest and, and seduction and rape and all sorts of things. You read each of the stories of those women and they are incredibly broken and in fact each one of them stand out throughout scripture because of the sexual brokenness that is in their lives. And of course, you know, we're used to a world. Our world is highly sexualized, isn't it? Everywhere you go, there's, there's um, like people in their undies on billboards and topless stuff and sex cells, and we all know that. So, so it loses its impact on us because we live in a very broken world where sexuality pervades. In the first century world, sexuality was kept under wraps, especially shame-filled sexuality, especially broken sexuality. You read stuff in the Old Testament. Notice uh, when David kills Bathsheba's husband and then takes her as his wife. Nobody, nobody um, rebukes David for it, do they? was kept under wraps, shh, we don't talk about that, until the prophet comes forward and says, David, you are that man. Took a prophet to come and declare the brokenness of David. And these women were figures of shame in the Jewish world. They're figures of shame because they were women, so, you know, thank God we're not women. And they were figures of shame because of their history. And so watch what Matthew does. Ready? Broken person, outsider, foreigner. Here's the third quality. Every single one of them is a Gentile. Every single one of them is of descent, that they are not born an Israelite. They somehow were married into the family. Bathsheba is a Hittite. Ruth was married to a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite, sorry. Rahab was from Jericho, the prostitute in the the city. And Tamar from outside the people of God as well. Watch what Matthew does in his story. Some people are not God type of people. Some people never get a mention. Some people, we thank God we're not those people. They're shameful. They're Gentiles. They're outsiders. They're pushed far from our mind. Then watch what Matthew does. Matthew says, "All the tammers of the world, women, foreigners, broken stories steeped in shame, maybe even sexually broken. Listen to what Matthew does. Welcome to the family." We imagine the nature and personality of God is that he would push people away and only accept the pure. But in Matthew's genealogy, the Easter egg about the life of Jesus is God doesn't push you away so he can paint a holy picture, what he does is he takes his broken people and he weaves them into a beautiful story. God doesn't write a beautiful story and marginalise the broken, he uses the broken and he weaves a wonderful artwork out of their lives and Matthew just lifts the veil a little bit on the nature and the personality of God and says, have a look at what Jesus is like, have a look at what God is like, welcome to the family Tamar, welcome to the family Rahab, welcome to the family Bathsheba, You were outsiders, you were foreigners, you were female, you were broken. But in Jesus, your story leads us to the kingdom of God. God takes broken children and he weaves them into his story. And he says to every one of us in the lives of these women, welcome to the family of God. You're woven into the lineage of Jesus. You're grafted into the story of the kingdom of God. It's pretty cool, huh? I thought it was. There's the next thing that that we read. We get a glimpse of hope. Matthew says, he's Jesus, the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And, And what we see in his genealogy is that there is some really interesting people woven into that story. But if we get this idea, Jesus, the son of Abraham. Everyone say Abraham. Abraham's biggest secret is not that he was the founder of a people group, the Jewish race. His his biggest secret. That's not his biggest secret. His biggest secret is not that God chose a people and rejected everyone else. That is not Abraham's biggest secret. Abraham's biggest secret is that God chose him so that God could do something in planet Earth. And five times in the book of Genesis, and it says it numerous times all throughout the rest of Scripture, five times in the book of Genesis, God will say to Abraham, or his children, he will reveal his promise. Being a child of Abraham, making you a child of the promise. When, when, When Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he's saying Jesus is inheriting all of the promise made to Abraham. And it caused friction and it caused conflict because in Jesus' day, the Jewish people were like, yeah, we're Abraham's children, so we want all the Gentiles dead and all the dogs dead and we want God to smite all the evil and just give us a Jewish world. And Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leaders and the politicians and the religious elites was not that God is pushing them aside because Jesus remembered something. Being a child, being a son of Abraham, Jesus remembered the promise of Abraham. And have a look at what the promise of Abraham was. There are five passages that say it. Genesis 12, three. I will bless those who bless you, Abraham. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, you are God's vehicle. Uh, the curse has come in in Genesis three. In Genesis four, it infects Cain and he kills Abel. In Genesis five and six, the earth is ruined and there's a flood. And then I choose Noah and I say, Noah, come and, come and start a new line. And then it leads up to the Tower of Babel where all the nations gather together and reject the rule of God. And what does he do? in Genesis 11. He scatters them. Why? Because they said, we don't want to fill the earth with God's blessing. We want to stay here, build a high tower and make a name for ourselves. And God chooses Abraham out of that group. And he scatters the nations around the face of the earth. He confuses their tongues. So they all have to spread out. And they wanted to make their name great. And God chooses Abraham and says, I will make your name great, Abraham. And I will give you a family and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Blessing hasn't been mentioned for a long time in Genesis. Cursing has come in. Death has come in. The ground is ruined with violence and sin. God has to flood it to wash it clean. And blessing language has gone out the window. But in Genesis 12, blessing language enters stage right again. You know what I'm doing, Abraham? I'm not rejecting the nations. I'm restoring my blessing to the nations. The secret of Abraham was not elite ethnicity. It was him being chosen by God to be a funnel of blessing to the nations. I'm not turning my back on the nations. I'm choosing myself a king and a priest who will send my blessing to the nations. Genesis 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Genesis 22, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me, Abraham. Genesis 26, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I'll give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Genesis 28, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the rest and to the east, to the north and to the south and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. The secret of Genesis is not God's exclusive choice of a nation, but God choosing a nation to make them a conduit so He could do what He desperately wanted to do since Genesis chapter 1. Let the earth be filled with His blessing, filled with a blessed people. And when Matthew says Jesus is the son of Abraham, like we see with the presence of these foreigners in his story, we see the ache of creation. We see the ache of God throughout the biblical narrative. We see the ache of history being fulfilled. Look, in Jesus, God's blessing is being restored to the nations. Therefore... Welcome to the family, people. Welcome to the family of God, people. I mean, I I love it in our church. I celebrate. Sometimes I look around and, man, we're like the United Nations in our church, aren't we? We, We've got people from every country, people from every continent, people from all these different language groups. And what do we do? We all stand together and we worship Jesus. Reminds me of John's vision in Revelation where people from every tongue, every tribe and every nation were circling around the throne of God, worshiping at His feet. We, the church as children of our father Abraham, grafted in as part of Jesus' family, we are the very fulfillment of the promise that God's blessing would extend to the nations. That's why the church can never be small in our thinking, can never be introverted in our heart. We're always looking outside our four walls, aren't we? We've always got a heart, not for just those who are here, but for those who should be here but aren't. Not for those who only fit, but for those who feel like they don't fit. We, we, we haven't just got a heart for the insider, but we've got a passion to reach people who feel like they're outsiders so they could know, man, you could be an insider to God. Let God weave you into his story. Let Jesus graft you into his family tree. Welcome to the family. 14, 14, 14. David, David, David. The Christ, the King, the Anointed One. Son of Abraham, returning God's blessing. Son of David. And God raised up David as a king. David had a passion for the things of God. And he wanted to build God a house. And God said, well, David, you can't really build my house because your hands are filled with blood. But he made him a promise. The promise comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think I have it for the screen. And the promise says this, that, God sent a prophet to David with this promise in response to David's desire to build the Lord a temple. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This very verse gave birth to hundreds of prophecies over hundreds of years about the coming King, the coming Anointed One, the coming Son of David. Many pretenders came, they all lay dead and buried because the Romans and the Babylonians would just kill everybody. Sometimes the Jewish people would kill them. Then along comes Jesus of Nazareth and Matthew is at great pains to say, read his life, study his teaching." gaze on his death marvel at his resurrection this is the one that god promised david god promised david he made promises about him the most significant promise was that the gospel of jesus offers a return of the kingship of god his kingdom will know no end that's what he said to david and in jesus At the end of his life, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority, all kingly rule and reign on earth has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, what does he tell them to do? Go and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey me. You know what he's saying? Restore my kingdom. Go to every nation. Remember how Abraham promised to return the blessing? That's your job now, church. Remember how a a, a king whose kingdom will never end was promised to David? That's your job now, church. And here's the secret in Matthew's genealogy. 14 generations... 14 generations, 14 generations. Do you want to know the secret? The last paragraph of Matthew's genealogy only contains 13 generations. It's actually 14, 14, 13. It's like Matthew is saying to his reader, you better get the picture. You better get the message of the story that God is including the outsiders and God is redeeming them and God is weaving them into a sacred story. God is taking their brokenness and weaving it into the kingdom of God. He is taking their far offness and making them come near. This is the, the blessing promised to Abraham, God's blessing spreading to the nations. This is the kingdom promised to David, a kingdom that will know no end. 14 generations, 14 generations, 13 generations. Here it is. And you, dear reader, you are the 14th generation. That's what the title of this message should really be. The people of the 14th generation. Because in Matthew's gospel, what we see is generations and generations of royal lineage. Generations of Jewish patriarchs, generations of history, generations of promise, generations of story. But in the 14th generation, we see a kingdom generation commissioned to become followers of Jesus, the son of Abraham, and Jesus, the son of David. The 14th generation, the people who say, I take my place as generation 14, and so I will, I will, I will inherit the blessing. And I will take it to the nations and I will inherit the kingdom and I will live out the kingdom of God as well. And all right at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew recruits you to have an ear open. See the Easter eggs? What are you going to do about it? And the very last words of Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. The beginning of the gospel starts with his family tree. The end of the gospel finishes. So invite people into the family tree. Welcome to The family, 14th generation. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room? I do have to finish today. My heart's always moved when I study scripture and I don't want to lie, when our preaching team came up with a preaching plan and I inherited week one on the genealogy of Matthew, I kind of felt like I'd been given the worst passage to preach on. The intro credits that we usually want to skip. But they're profoundly laden with meaning and laden with a message to us. And everything we'll read in Matthew's gospel is buried in this genealogy, so many things. The nature of God, the heart of God, the love of God, the wonder of Jesus. So I pray for you, my brother and my sister, under the sound of my voice today, listening online, here in this room, listening to a podcast. I pray you would hear the whisper of Matthew's gospel that comes to us throughout the ages. Will you be the 14th generation? Will you be those that carry the promise? Will you be those that carry the kingdom? Will you be those that would write genealogies that include the broken and don't push them away? Will you be those that let every nation come? Those who say, I'm going to teach everyone, you can be a follower of Jesus. Let him braid you into his family tree. Let him weave you into his tapestry. Let him paint you into his artwork. I pray for you, my friend, that the gospel would get into your bones. I pray the gospel would get into your heart and soul. I pray the hope offered, the kingdom promised, and the redemption given would be something that moves your soul in Jesus' name. I pray for you. I pray God's grace. I pray the blessing that God promised to the nations would flow into your life today in Jesus' name, my friend. And I pray motivation would rise in your heart. Hey, what a great message. I could not keep that to myself. I need to walk in the joy of it, and I need to give it away to somebody else. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill the hearts and minds of everybody listening to this word today, that you would send us as your people, that we would have a deep revelation of being generation 14, and we would go, we would be redeemed in your love, and then sent in your blessing, I pray, in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for people who don't know you, that you would give them grace in this moment. As you hover over this room, calling people back to you. If we put up our spiritual antennas, we'll hear this voice. Come on, my son, my daughter, that's you. Say yes, that's you. Come on, now is your time. Now is your moment. Join the family of God. Welcome to the family. Say yes to the gospel message. And I pray for you, my friend, in your heart that you would have the grace. And just say, God, my answer is yes to the gospel message. Lord, let all of us leave with a resounding yes in our soul to your offer of life to become part of Jesus' family tree. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everyone said, amen and amen.